another episode. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as The Comeback Coach. Guys, if you are a business owner or want to be a business owner, pull over, make sure that you're in a quiet place and you're going to want to listen to this because my friend Tony Watley is going to bring the heat. He's a business coach, best-selling author of one of my favorite books, by the way. It's one of two books I have on my, my bedstand at all times. Top-rated podcaster, amazing speaker, throws some amazing events, entrepreneur, and of course, he loves cars. Tony, my brother, what's going on? What's going on, Richard? How's this volume over there? Everything oh, I hear good? You. I hear you perfectly, my friend. How are you doing today? Man, it's uh, early in the week. Got a lot of things on my calendar to knock out, but it's uh, it's going to be a good week for sure. Well, I hope your ears were ringing because the other the other day, me and Zach Babcock were talking about you and some of the events you got going on. I can't wait to uh, check out some of the events and some of the speakers you have coming on. And we'll definitely talk about that a little bit. So what's going on in the world of Mr. Tony Watley? Well, I guess nowadays I'm still a active business coach and I've run three different mastermind groups. I have about a dozen one-on-one clients putting out live events, those three to four day type vacation getaways for entrepreneurs where we do things on bucket list items and have some good takeaways as good networking opportunities. And I just signed a TV deal that's going to be started filming sometime in late November for a 2022 release that can't talk about many details on that right now, but there's a lot of big things going on. I'm so proud of you and I love everything that you're doing. Um, like I said, your book is, I got two books sitting on my table at all times. It's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then it's Side Hustle Millionaire. I love it. But first of all, I want to go back because I want to get the pe- to know, I want the people to get to know the man behind the myth and the legend. Where are you originally from and what kind of little boy was Tony as a kid? I'm actually originally from the Houston area. I still live in the Houston area. I was actually born in Japan. My mom is Japanese and my dad was serving in Vietnam War as a Marine and that's where they met in Japan. And we've been in the States since I was one year old. So I don't remember anything outside of Texas, but who was I? I'd say that I was always a daredevil kid. I was always the one that would put the extra brick under the bike ramp and jump over my friends and do these crazy things. And I used to watch Evil Knievel and think being a stuntman or a fighter pilot or a race car driver was what I was going to do. So I've always been, you know, just enjoyed risk and the adrenaline rush. And that's just who I've always been. Now, were you an athlete? Were you a good student? I was a straight A student and I did play football and did some wrestling and run track and things like that. So I think when I was younger, I definitely had a more violent side to combat stuff and did martial arts. And I enjoyed that stuff. I did because it kind of just kind of fed the adrenaline rush. Now, I've I've interviewed a lot of um, high performers and a lot of Navy SEALs, and most of them actually have a background in wrestling. Mm -hmm. And they would say a lot of the times because they had to cut weight during the holidays and that really sucked. But a lot of it was if they got pinned on the mat, it was their fault. So a lot of it was taking personal responsibility. Hmm. Did, do you think that helped you mentally as you were growing up? I think so. I think for me, uh, my football coach was the one that really pushed me the hardest because I wasn't a big kid. I grew, I had a growth spurt in my junior year of high school. So I was, I would say, below average until then. And I played fullback. So I had to go through the, the line and go knock linebackers down who were six foot two and 230, 240 size dudes. And 
you know, I had a coach yelling at me to go full speed and knock these guys down. And I was probably at that time, probably five, eight and one forty range thinking like, this guy's crazy. Is he like telling me to run through this hole and like take these guys down? Like, are you crazy? But I learned that physics has a place in football and the faster I run, if I can run twice as fast, I can actually hit them with the same impact. And that's what I learned. So I gained a lot of confidence on and off the field, knowing that size doesn't really matter. People just think it does. Now, were you always a, a reader? Because, you know, I always believed that readers were leaders. Were you always a reader? Absolutely. I've been reading forever. I, I think I've always enjoyed reading even as a kid. And even to this day, I still finish at least a book a week on audio books. And, and I keep a stack of books on my nightstand. And part of my evening routine is every every day, last 30 minutes or so I go read in my bed. I love that. And we'll definitely t- talk about, cause I want to definitely talk about your evening and, and morning rituals. Um, so now did you, cause you were good in sports and good in school. Did you get any scholarships for college? No, actually I didn't. And it was a kind of a bitter lesson that I learned as, is that I made straight A's all the way through school. I actually had even perfect attendance because of my mom for kindergarten through graduation you know she valued education pretty highly as a Japanese woman that didn't get to finish her education after junior high they basically worked on the farms and so she made sure my sister and I were getting on that bus even if we're dying right but I always brought on that discipline and I started to identify myself as someone who could perform in that regard and that's just one of the ways I could be competitive so I adopted that and became that and it drove me and i push myself at an academic level and fitness levels and just showing up and doing the right thing. And that's just who I am. But I think that when it comes to school, I just, I just really just thought of it. Hey, this is a good way that I need to be just focused on the future. Cause I didn't know, understand I would, nobody in my family had money. We grew up pretty lower middle class and my mom worked in the public schools as a cafeteria worker. My dad, after the military, worked in the construction and the the chemical refineries in the Houston area. So I just knew that education was a potential way to get out of that setting if I didn't want to grow up in that setting. Now, did you eventually go to college? Yes, I put myself through mechanical engineering school, University of Houston, by working construction at age 18 and started waiting tables on the weekends to make those ends meet. And yeah, it took me seven years working full-time construction and going to school at night. So where did you get the entrepreneurial bug? To me, I think it was just always a, a means to get things that I wanted. So when I was a kid, my birthday's in November and Christmas isn't obviously in, in December. So there was only two months out of the entire calendar where I would get gifts because we didn't have allowance or money in Watley household. So if I wanted video games or skateboards or BMX bikes, I had to go figure out how to earn that stuff for myself. So for me, it was just a means of knocking doors and mowing yards and walking dogs and washing cars and raking leaves and anything I could, just flipping things, buying stuff and fixing things up and selling them. And that's just what I did. I didn't call that really entrepreneurship. I know some people look at that and think, hey, that's kidpreneur. We say that nowadays. But for me, it was just a means to get what I wanted. And I could sit around and make a bunch of big excuses and not have what I wanted, or I can go to work. And, you know, fortunately for me, my parents both supported me doing those kind of things. They encouraged it. Hey, if you want something, go figure it out. You know, that's how they've always worked for teaching me. So entrepreneurship to me really didn't occur until my late twenties when I started working my corporate job and I was being told to wait my turn and pay your dues and 
you're going to get a promotion five, six years from now. It just, I got told of being told to wait my turn and pay my dues. And I thought, man, I need something external to go try to get some knowledge, get some creativity, invest some skills, learn some new things, take some chances. So entrepreneurship to me was just a really a creative outlet that I was using because I wasn't getting those opportunities at work. So what was your first legitimate side hustle that you actually, when you were still working your, your full-time job? Two different things. I actually taught myself how to build little simple web pages. I bought a book on coding HTML and I said, Hey, there's a lot of companies out there that don't have websites yet. So maybe I can teach myself that. And I've always been a creative and artist type person. So it was kind of fascinating to me to see graphic design and Photoshop. I just always thinking about, Hey, how, how do I learn to put that on a screen? I just didn't understand that. So I'd just go buy books and I'd read them and I'd practice and Soon enough, I was building these little one to three page websites for local car shops and parts manufacturers and, and small businesses. And, and sometimes it was just bartering, you know, if they had some kind of a product or service that I wanted and, and I didn't want to spend the money, I would just offer to build them a web page and trade them. And that's kind of worked out for a while. It paid for my hobbies and stuff like the racing cars and stuff like that. And eventually I came up with a product idea, which I would say was my first business and I was building a little electronic circuit that plug and play into a, a wiring harness for a GM engine for a Camaro or a Firebird or a Corvette that would add about 10 horsepower based on fooling a sensor and making the car think it was you know running a little leaner than it was and would just make a little bit more power. And I taught myself how to build those things and I'd make them on my kitchen table each night and have my little soldering gun and my resistors and these little circuit boards and wiring plugs and things like that. And it would take me an hour to build each of those each night. And I would do about three a night and I would only make about 30 or 40 bucks profit for each unit. So it was limited by time. You know, I mean, I can only make three a night and then I can make you know, 100, 120 bucks sitting there at the kitchen table every night, which was better than waiting tables, which I still did after I graduated, but I can do it at home now instead of waiting tables. So I just realized that that wasn't really scalable. And there's a lot of people out there that want to start a business and they want to, do handcrafts and build things with their hands and things that take a lot of time. And it just doesn't scale very well unless you have other people build that stuff for you. And there wasn't a big enough demand for me to be able to justify that. So first you got to tell me about your love of cars. I mean, I love cars. Um, you know, like my wife asked me if I could buy you any car, what would you want? And I said, I, w I would love to have a 1970 Dodge charger. That's just my favorite car of all time. But what got you, into loving cars and what was the first car you ever looked at and was like damn i would love to drive that i think for me i'm a third generation kind of gearhead where my grandfather and my dad both enjoyed cars chevy mostly chevy muscle car era and i grew up seeing my cool c10 pickups that my granddad would drive the two-tone chevys and my dad had camaros and, and 442s and, and malibus and things like that and so I grew up being mechanically minded because one, we didn't have money. So we had to figure out how to repair stuff on our own. So my dad was very handy with tools and was always building things and repairing things around the house. And I learned that stuff because I was always fascinated with it too. So again, like it was a means to get what we needed and we didn't have the money. So we learned how to do things ourselves. But as a kid, I was very fascinated with cars. And I think that this is something that people are born into. I think you can adopt and become a, a car enthusiast have an appreciation for cars, but I think that some people are more car fanatics and that's how I would describe myself. 
And it's always been around. There's always been evidence of that. Cause I remember even as a kid where I'd be sitting at the kitchen table while my mom was cooking dinner and she would buy me coloring books because I like to paint and draw and make things. And instead of coloring the pictures that are printed in the book, I would actually just draw cars and trucks and all the empty places. And in the front of the back of the covers, of these books, and soon enough, she figured out that I can just give him blank sheets of paper and he can just draw cars and trucks and airplanes and army tanks like all he wants. He didn't need to have a book. So that's what I did. And I even had a, a Ziploc bag of nut and bolt washers of all different sizes that I would trace to make the wheels and the tires so they would look more round. <laughs> so to me, I've always been fascinated. That was probably like age four, age five, going back that far. Wow. So what was your first business that really, really took off that? that um set you on the road to success i started a online community in 2001 for general motors performance cars so camaro firebird corvette cadillac ct cts v series and all these different you know v8 general motors cars and i just really wanted to build a website that was kind of cool to hang out on that we could talk about cars and racing and make your car look better go faster be a better driver how to get better quarter mile times, lap times, whatever. Just kind of a cool place to hang out. And that was ls1tech.com. And within 10 months, it was already making about $10,000 a month profit. And that's because we had advertisers, people that would just run banner ads and have their websites clickable from that because we were starting to build so much traffic as the hub for all things technical and racing on the General Motors community platform. And by year two and a half, probably three years, we were number one in the market segment. We had hundreds of thousands of members. And by that time, we were probably making about 400000 a year profit. And that was just something I did in my spare time. So at what time, at what point did it go from passion to all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, I can, we can, this can be very successful. There had to be some kind of mindset. Or did you just start out thinking of the end game? I'm not one to half-ass anything really when I start, but I didn't expect it to make that kind of money. No one ever thinks that. And it was never the intention. It became the result. But once it started to make decent income, we said, oh crap, man, we need to make this an LLC or an S Corp. But we just started doing the entrepreneurship checklist of things that you do. Like a lot of it's covered in my book, right? But we kind of just had to learn as we go. And that's the thing. And I think that a lot of people nowadays with entrepreneurship, they think they need to know everything before they start. And I will challenge that every single time because every successful entrepreneur I've ever met learned as they went, they, but they had to take the action first. They, they didn't need to know all the answers. They just needed to take the action, create something, go create a business, go create a way to sell or build a product or whatever it is. And by the success and growth of that, as you go, you're going to have to be forced to learn these things and improve or fail. And that's okay. But I think a lot of times people just try to fortify themselves with all this information. They read all these books, they read all, listen to all these podcasts, they join all these communities and then they, they don't do anything. It's like, you see them a year later and they're the same situation. They're, they're still posting on their social media about which book they've read and things like that. But they're like, Hey, what, what business did you start? What product did you come up with? Like, what are you doing? And, and they're not doing anything, they're consuming. So you got to move from being a consumer to a creator. And as soon as possible is the right answer. And dude, it just grew and said, hey, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. You know, and reported the taxes. We kept the accounting on, on 
Like, I mean, it started out as an Excel spreadsheet, just really simple stuff, a checking account, PayPal account to get paid. It was really simple the way you do things now. It's, and it's actually easier nowadays to start a business than it ever was. There's even less excuses available. So don't think you need to have the answers. Just go do something. You know, and, and I love that. Now, 90% of the people would, hey, if their company is making 400000 they're just going to sit back, rest on their laurels, you know, collect a check, dry, start driving nice cars, fancy women, and drinking booze and getting into trouble. What made you think, all right, I've been there, done it, now I want to move on to something else? I mean, we were already kind of starting to see a decline in that market because... At that point, this was around 2006, 2007, and social media was just starting to kick off. I mean, you realize I, I built and sold that company for millions before Facebook and Instagram were even a thing, you know? So we were right at the beginning of Facebook, which was 2008. Instagram really started to make more waves around 2010, just to kind of keep things in context. But you know, we started to see a decline because social media platforms were taking a lot of the socializing aspect they didn't take they're still terrible at the technical aspect and the racing aspect and the archive aspect of forums and communities but the social media thing started to take a little bit of the traffic from just the, the fun part right the, the screwing around and socializing and chit chat part but that was still traffic you know that was still driving ad revenue for us so we already started to see a, a potential decline hadn't plateaued yet but we were okay making that kind of money. Like you said, we both were, you know, I had a partner named John and we were both making six figures in our corporate careers. This is something we had a team of people doing by then. We didn't even have to really work at all. And so we just enjoyed those kind of things. And I was involved in the automotive media. I was doing contributing editor and freelance photojournalism for all the major automotive magazines and the car events and the SEMA convention and things like that. I was building project cars, sponsorships. I, Built over 40 project cars. Some of them were multiple six-figure type investments that had sponsors and built a lot of shop cars for different companies around the country. So I had a lot of things going on. And, and to me, it was, a, it was a fun way to be in the industry that I really love. And I'm still involved. I'm actually on the marketing advisory you know, task force for SEMA, which is the Special Equipment Manufacturing Association, which is all the high performance and aftermarket for cars so i'm still involved in the industry but it, to me it's like dude we just got to build it and i don't want to half-ass it and that's the result that we came out with we were actually approached by a company that wanted to acquire it and we weren't for sale they just came to us and they said hey we bought these other four sites that you may be familiar with we'd like to talk to you about selling yours and we recognize those other sites because it was the number one audi site the number one bmw site the number a Ford site. So we knew those, those brands very well because they were the same size as ours. I said, well, wow, if they, they sold those companies to this company, then maybe we should have a conversation with them. You know, and I, and I, I'm just trying to, I'm thinking, you know, cause I, I, I listened to a lot, a lot of the shows that you've been on and it's amazing. You know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, when you sell, you sell your company, and then, you know, you have the money in, in the bank, but you still feel that burning in your belly. You know, you still feel, all right, there's something um, something new I got to do. So what was that next thing, that next general and rush? I'm not sure. I think that after I sold the company, that was, I was around 34 at the time, if I'm doing the math correctly. And 
I actually kind of fell off the wagon. I, I'd say I'd say that I kind of got lazy and physically and mentally because one, I never thought I would become a millionaire, much less a multimillionaire. That just never even seemed like a reality in my life or in my mind. And I just started having more excuses. I let my health fade. I gained weight. I got kind of lazy. My friends I surrounded myself with were kind of the same regard, you know, kind of mid to high net worth, but also kind of just lazy and not really doing anything anymore. And when you start to surround yourself with people like that, you kind of become who you surround yourself with. Right. And I remember, you know, even like going to the gym and things like that is like, I didn't go because I had my knee ached and my lower back ached and I must keep, must be getting older. I'm in my late thirties, like thinking like that. And you hang around with a bunch of people who, validate that same bullshit excuse because they all say the same stuff and so you really start to believe like oh i guess i'm just not healing like i used to because i'm getting older and as you know, i was in my late 30s at the time and you know so it took like the pivotal age for me is 40 that's always a milestone age for most people it's like is this really what i'm going to do for the next 25 30 years of my life is make a bunch of excuses and hang around with people who aren't really driving themselves hang around people that talk about remember when instead of imagine when and no, it's not, it was never enough for me. I just said, I, I got to do something better. So I actually started becoming more physically fit in my 40 at age 40. I was like, I'm going to make the next 10 years my best ever. So now I'm 40, almost 49. And I am the, the physically the strongest I've ever been in my life. So for the last nine years, I've been very physical and going to the gym at least six days a week and, you know, lifting all kinds of crazy weight. And I'm not a big dude. I'm, I'm a 185. 5'11 guy, but you know, I deadlift 500 pounds and bench 300 pounds and squat 400 pounds. It's like, I got all these big numbers, but I don't look like a big dude. Now, can you remember back to that day when you just, they say, you know, you have that come to Jesus moment where you're like, all right, I'm tired of this bullshit. And what was it like walking back into the gym after all these years? It's always embarrassing because when you identify as an athlete and you let yourself go, you still feel like you're going to be as strong as you used to be. And then you go into the gym and you go, okay, let's, for example, let's go to the bench press, especially the dudes listening, right? So you go, okay, I'll throw 135 on there and like do some warm ups, you know, 45 plate on each side. And you do like two and you're dying. And you're like, what the hell? Like, this used to be a warm up. Like, I can't even do two of these. That's not even my own weight. Like, this is weak as hell. And it's embarrassing. And, that's the problem is that when you let yourself go physically like that and you knew that you were better at a younger age or at a different time, you realize that average is what I would call zero for looking at a scale, you know, zero to negative or zero to positive, like average health is zero. And if you're below average, you're negative, you're literally negative. So you're already having to understand that just to set foot in the gym and start over again, you're going to be starting negative and you're going to have to put in a lot of work just to get to zero. Like that's the philosophy here. Like you have to put in a lot of work just to get the average health. And then if you can continue that discipline and showing up, now you're getting on the positive side. Right. But I think what keeps most people from starting is because they realize how much work they're going to have to do just to get back to zero. Now, you know, what, once you started getting back and you started getting back in shape, I'm sure that it it does help with your psyche when you start getting back in shape, you start feeling better. And even um, getting, like I said, getting back in shape can help you from the boardroom to the bedroom. So 
how did that help you mentally getting back in shape? Well, for one, it's no matter how confident you think you are in this moment, if you're unhealthy, guess what? You have a lot more room to improve because when you become confident and healthy and you stand out in the crowd, because here's the thing, if you're, if you're a guy or girl and you're in your twenties, your thirties, you're sort of expected to be healthy. I mean, you're young and it's easier. You have a higher metabolism, but now when you're in your forties, fifties and older, very few people stand out in a crowd as being fit at those ages. So you can actually have an unfair advantage by entering a room by being more physically fit than your peers, especially when you're more fit than people half your age, right? So whatever level of confidence you think you have, because you may be sitting there thinking like, I'm large and in charge, man, I'm super awesome. And I don't care that I'm big. Like we've all been there. We allied to ourselves just like you do. Mm -hmm. So when you start to take care of yourself and be committed to it and other people start to recognize and see that and realize that you do have discipline, you will have a heightened level of confidence and certainty about you that you didn't discover until you are there. So when did you first decide to write your book? What was the reason and what was, you know, uh, why did you write your, your book? Which I, like I said, is truly amazing. It's very easy to read. Um, even for a low tech redneck like me, it's, it's very digestible. So what made you want to write, write your book? For me, the book was something that was in my mind probably for five years before I wrote it. And I wrote it in late 2017. It came out in May of 2018, but here's the thing. We all have a book. Every one of us does. And I thought about how am I going to impact people? And what was the basis of this is I, I'll, I'll rewind it a bit because 2015, I was in a, a near-death experience racing cars at the drag strip. I hit a concrete wall in a two-door sports car, Dodge Viper, twin turbo, 1,000 horsepower, hit a concrete wall at 130 miles per hour. And in that moment, I thought I was going to die. And I realized I could have died. And I started to think about how would I have been remembered had I died? And that's what started to realize that I'd only impacted my personal bank account and the people in the close proximity to me. So those who knew me or those who worked for me or those who were my friends or family got to greatly benefit from my knowledge and my experience because I'd helped at least 12 other people that were former staff members of mine become millionaires and build seven, eight and nine figure companies, just mentoring them. I wasn't charging. I was giving them advice and giving them guidance, things that I always do anyways. And they were always telling me I should be doing that full time because they were getting great results. And like, why aren't you teaching people this? And the, the reason why is because I wasn't comfortable speaking on a microphone. I wasn't comfortable being on camera. I didn't like being in front of people on, on, on stage. I had stage fright. So I had to get over myself. And what I realized that after that accident is that my time could have ended that moment on that track and that night. And then what, how would I have been remembered? I would have been remembered as a nice, rich guy with cool cars. And to me, that's not a really high aspiration. It's very superficial. I mean, yeah, if, if you're dirtbag, you know, you're mean to everybody, you would aspire to be remembered as nice, but I've always been nice. I've always been helpful. But as someone who's also equally driven and a high performer who wants to do more, it showed me that I, I was potentially making I could have made more impact with my life at that point than I was. I was only benefiting closer people. So I decided in that moment, I need to go make more impact. And for me, I didn't know what that meant at the time. I said, hey, I need to go impact as many people as possible. I don't know how to define that, but I left my corporate job and I was making 240 a year. So it wasn't like just like 
like, oh, I'm going to quit this crappy job and, and never work again. I, fortunately, I was in a good position to be able to do that. In the next two years, I kind of just went on a soul searching thing. I took consulting gigs and, and worked on things and, and tried to figure out what I wanted to do, create an impact for myself. And I said, okay, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to teach people how to start and grow their first business because that's what people wanted from me. So I wrote that book. And when I thought about that, it was kind of the looking back, I was actually still kind of afraid of the publicity or the potential fame that may come with a successful book. So to me, the book was the most, I hate to say it now, but it's the most cowardly way to get your information out there because you could have an old, ultimately a highly successful book, but you could still relatively be unknown. You know, I mean, if you and I, Richard, walk by a non-celebrity New York Times bestselling author, you probably wouldn't recognize them. So you can actually become influential without being you know, known. So I thought that, hey, that's like a safe thing. I can go do that, you know? And if it does well, awesome. If it doesn't do well, like no big deal. I tried, right? That's kind of the mentality we have sometimes. And, you know, the book did exceptionally well. It sold over a thousand copies the first week. It's going on to sell thousands of copies since and became a New York, you know, number one bestseller on the, the Amazon small business list and hit number 11 on all personal development books on Amazon, which is crazy. I didn't expect that part to go that high, but it did. And, People start wanting to interview me and, and you know, I've been on TV and the radio and stages and things like that. And it's just, I had to become the right person to carry that story. And that took a lot of time and investment and courage to go become the side hustle millionaire because I had the experience, but I hadn't right, had the right persona or the confidence to be able to carry that message. You know, and I think one thing I liked that you talk about a lot is, um, legacy you know and i'm a big you know like our, our friend gary says you know let your legacy will always be more valuable than your currency so you know a lot of people don't think about legacy until it's too late and it seems like you know because you had that one experience that you really started to think about your legacy so is that how you went, went about speaking and um, become and coaching people was because you wanted to create a a, a, a great legacy and also help more people and change the world. Absolutely. That's the key. I thought, how am I going to impact people? Do I start a nonprofit? Do I just become a bigger philanthropist or what does this even mean? And to me, I just started looking back at evidence of what people ask me advice for, you know? And so everybody out there has got a different skill set or knowledge base that they're always getting asked advice for. So take that as a clue. Maybe that that's how you're perceived as an authority or an expert in something. And, Maybe that's a business or something that you can do to create a massive impact. So I said, man, I've always been fascinated with business. I didn't grow up with money. So I used to read the magazines, Entrepreneur and Success and Forbes, when, even when I was little, like 12, 13 years old, because I didn't have money. I figured if I could read those money magazines, maybe they'd teach me something about money and I figured that out. So I was kind of odd at looking back. Yeah, but I, I just read them without understanding anything. And I read them cover to cover, even the advertisements, because I was just trying to figure out what they were talking about. And it, it took maybe a year and I started understanding a little bit more and more. But I've always been fascinated with business. I always thought it was like a game. I used to love video games and things like that. So to me, a business is a game. It's you got rules and, and business and you know, rules in video games like you know, the rules in business would be the taxes, the regulatory stuff, the laws, the, the just anything that's involved with the rules, just like games and score is, is financial or impact or fulfillment. And these are things that you can measure score. So 
how do I look at the newest set of rules each year and determine how am I going to be successful and play and win this game? So it's always been kind of fun to me to think about that. So I said, you know, if I could teach people that and I could speak on business at a high level of energy every single day and see other people get the results from that, then that's what I want to do. So I, start, I used to say, dude, I'm going to impact thousands of people. And then the book sold thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. So I said, shit, I guess I'm impacting thousands. So maybe I need to impact millions of people. That even when I started saying that, it was kind of odd at first, but now I believe that because I'm going into year four already and I've already seen thousands of people change. So now I say impacting millions of people. And that's the best way I'm going to do this. If you're listening to this, you have your way that you're going to do that. You have to go discover that. Yeah, and I love that. Now, I just review with, with my friend Rich Cardona, and of course, he's a top 100 podcaster, but he's also a branding expert. And we were talking about branding, you know, and a lot of business owners, or even like you said, authors, um, if you they don't know who you are, you can write the best book in the world. But like you said, if you're walking by, by the, across the street from somebody, you're not going to know who they are. So talk to us a little bit about branding and how important branding is, especially in today's uh, market. I think branding is very, very important, but I would say that marketing is more important. I think that most people, especially entrepreneurs or beginning entrepreneurs, especially, or maybe if you're in the first three years, I think that most people will start a business based on a skill set or a knowledge base that they have. Maybe it's something they learned in their of their career and they go, hey, I'm really good at this. I'm highly compensated at this and I've got excellent results and I can demonstrate those things. So maybe I need to go start a business and do this. And that's great. But most people that are leaving corporate or leaving their job to go start a business don't understand that marketing and salesmanship are equally important as the skill set and the knowledge base that they currently have. So they tend to overvalue their knowledge and their skill and they undervalue business acumen, management, marketing, and salesmanship. And I would say from 20 years of business ownership that it's probably worth 50% of your success. So like you said, if you wrote the very best book in the world, I mean, you can be the most brilliant author ever undiscovered and write this amazing book. And it could literally be glowing if it was on the shelf. But if nobody knew where to find it, no one would care and no one would matter. And no, you're not going to get the results. So you have to invest in the marketing and the branding skills to be able to position yourself as an authority to get to the larger audiences, to build those kind of impacts that you want. And I think a lot of people are reluctant to do that. They think that they just create this product and they listen to you know, silly statements like, you know, the field of dreams, build it and they will come like, no, they won't. Like literally they will not come like just building something or making a product. They're not going to show up. Like I can't, tell you how many people I've seen, like especially like the e-com side of business where like, you know, I want to get into e-com because I see all these people making millions of dollars. I can go create a website and all these people will just come in there and start making all this money. And I'll wake up and it's like, you know, inbox money is what they call it, right? They, they think that they just go create this website, put some products on there. And all of a sudden people will just start buying things. Like that's not how it works. Like you got to have a really good website. You got to have good products but you also got to let people know where to find it and why they need to buy it. And that's the marketing and the branding side of things. And if you don't invest in that skill set, your fancy website's not going to convert to any sales. And that's the truth. And so if you're listening to this, make sure you're investing time or money or just something in the branding and marketing skills and sales 
Otherwise, you're not going to be successful. Now, uh, you know, I, I love marketing. I've always been a sale, in sales. I love sales. But it seems like, you know, I'm, I do most of my damage on LinkedIn. That's where I, I'm going to be found. But, you know, I get this on my e- email every day. Hey, bro, uh, why don't you buy my product? And I'm like, wait a minute. It's like, is that how people talk to each other nowadays? It seems like a lot of marketers are um, in the military. We used to say just called pray and spray instead of being a sniper. Time to get to know each person that you send a direct message to. So talk to us about good marketing and really, really bad marketing. There's a big difference. Well, I think the the key to marketing is understanding the psychology behind marketing and why people buy or make a decision. And it's largely based on emotion instead of logic. So we like to think that we're very logical people and we make everything based on logic. And yeah, there are some purchases that we do a lot of research and comparison. And But at the end of the day, it always comes back to an emotional decision. Like a logical purchase is typically a repair. It's this is broken. I need to fix it or replace it. And therefore I need to go buy it. And a lot of times you're reluctant to go spend that money because it's a repair. Like nobody likes to repair stuff, right? Or repair something or replace something that's broken. But 80% of your purchases are more emotional. Like I want that. I desire that. I, I think I need that. You know, you convince yourself that it's great and you convince yourself it's going to change your life or make you have some kind of a positive emotion reaction. So you go buy those kind of things. So I see a lot of times people will put a bullet point list of like all the tangible things that are great about their product. And they're talking about like, it's this shiny and it's this new and it's, it's got this cool feature. And it's like, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody's buying it. It's like, what, do you, what problem are you solving? You know, why would someone buy that? What, are, what is it going to change their life? Like what kind of emotional before and after are they expecting by investing in that product or service? You start speaking to them on an emotional level you get better results, but you wouldn't know that if you just look at billboards and all that. Cause a lot of these times they're just putting crap up there. That's not really converting either. And you're learning from the wrong people. And I see that definitely see that all the time. Now, you know, you have I, the 365 driven podcast, which I love. I don't ever miss an episode, by the way. Um, you have an amazing group. So where did that all come about? Because, you know, a lot of people, you know, that are in the podcast realm, but the average podcast only lasts 10 episodes and it's, and it's done because people quit. So where did it come, the, the group? And then why did you start a podcast? The group is based really on the similar leadership and business model that I did with the automotive communities. The first community, LS1 Tech that I mentioned grew to over 300,000 members. And then I created performancetrucks.net for the racing truck community. And that one grew to 280,000 registered members. So I'm pretty good at repeating and building communities. I've I've established that for 20 years. Uh, 365 Driven is an entrepreneurship community. And I said, you know, I'm going to take the same principles and leadership and guidance and understandings that I've built and just build a leadership group for entrepreneurs and, and people that maybe want to start businesses that don't have all the answers and I want to build it highly engaged where people answer questions. They feel safe and they can participate. There's a lot of reasons that you do things to become a leader. So the podcast was a result of me being a consumer and enjoying podcasts. And 
I would listen to some of these shows and there'd be some of the guests that I would love to have conversations with. And they just wouldn't ask very good questions, to be honest. I was like, you know, how can you have somebody that's world renowned in this subject or an expert or an authority in this subject? And they start asking real surface level, boring questions or worse is like the same host will just answer, ask the exact same questions of every guest, every show. And it's like, that's even super more, super lame right there. Cause that's not even a genuine conversation. So I started thinking about, man, if I could have those conversations with these people, I would ask them this. And I said, well, why don't I create my own show to give myself that opportunity to speak to those people and ask the questions that I would like to hear answered and then share that same value with my audience. And so podcasting becomes a networking tool. It's an authority tool. It's a positioning tool, but it's also a value creating and educational tool. And so it's there's no losses there. You just have to have the consistency to build that over time. Like you said, pod fade is what we call that occurs between seven and 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. It's because people weren't really committed, just like the vast majority of people, they weren't committed in the beginning, you know, and they realized like, oh man, I'm editing episodes is taking time. I have to ask people to be guests. I have to create the artwork. Like I have to upload it. Like there's a lot of boxes you got to check to get an episode out there. And if you're not committed to doing it for the reasons behind it, then you're not going to be successful in anything. It's kind of like the 80-20 rule we hear. You know, that, you know, 20% of results are a result of, or 80% of results are a result of 20% of the people that are committed to doing things. So if you understand that, if I just outlast people and I can go 12 months and drop an episode every single week and consistently for a year, I'm going to simply outlast 80% of the people. And then I'm only competing in the top 20%, which is, just showing up, that's all it takes, making consistent value, like, cool, sign me up. But that also applies to anything in life to me. I think that most people quit too soon. And so if I understand that, then I use that as a strategic play. If I just outlast them, then I'll win. Okay, so now I have a question because, you know, everybody that comes on my show, for me, the relationship just starts today. And I'm all about building generational relationships. Um, I think that's that's why I'm a little bit different than some people. So can you talk to us a little bit about building real relationships with people and, you know, not just that surface level stuff? I think that it's important to understand the types of relationships. There's going to be some that are transactional and there's going to be some that are relational. But yeah. you got to be pretty quick at assessing which category people can fit in. Now, it's not to say that people can't move between those categories, it happens, but it's good to just kind of understand where the basis is from the beginning. The transactional people are the kinds that you're hiring for a service or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all need a transactional relationship. Some we hire the friends that we know that are you know, people are referrals and things like that, but it doesn't always blossom into an actual relationship. And these are the ones that well, people are always asking you to buy something from them or you know, do business with them. And you can see their messaging is mostly pitching about their company or their product or the service like nonstop. And it's, it's a more inward focused. It's, it's self-centered in, in some ways. And they're not, they're kind of oblivious to it or because that's their, their nature. Right. I mean, we see a lot of influencers out there that just talk about wanting to sell you something all the time and it kind of gets annoying. Let's be real. Nobody likes to get pitched to. No one really likes to get sold to and things like that. So you got to find a balance. And for me, you know, they're like, Again, it's like if I can give 90% value and encourage them and help people and give them advice, that 10% of times that I do ask for something, whether that's buy a book or 
listen to a show or give me a review or join my mastermind or go attend this event. I don't do that with every post. It's probably closer to 5% of my content is something like that. So, you know, you got to think about that. It's like, are they giving more than they're asking? And a transactional person typically doesn't throw, it's just asking, 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 and they're not going to do anything for you unless there's a something in return, you know, that it's trans is purely transactional. Now relational is, Hey, I want you in my network. I think you're doing amazing things. I don't know where this is going to go. I don't even know if we're ever going to have a deal or, or what, but you know what, if you're building a pretty cool boat, I want to be on that boat and I'm building a pretty cool ship over here too. So you can ride on my ship too. See, so it's very a relational thing. There's not an ask. It's not doing it because you're getting something in return because what I've learned by living that way my entire life is that the returns often occur when I least expect it and, and, and unknown ways of showing up. So let's say that I help you Richard and you achieve some major things and 15 years down the road, like you're still in contact and somebody enters your, your, your space and they go, Hey, I'm looking for someone that does this. And you go, Hey, you know what? I know a guy that does that. Tony does that. And he's the best at the world at doing that. You should go talk to him. See, so referrals and opportunities sometimes present themselves 20 years down the road and you just don't know what to expect. So don't, don't think everything's got to be an instant return on things that you're doing today. I love that. Now, of course, you have, you know, events. Thank God things are starting to get out a little bit and um, you're able to start holding events again. But like I was talking to another gentleman, his name is um, Daryl Stinson. And we were talking about how somebody on the average American won't think twice about shelling out twelve or thirteen hundred dollars for a brand new iPhone 13. But if you ask them, you know, well, do you invest in yourself? Do you go? Do you go to classes? Do you, you you get books? Do you are you mentored? Are you are you coached? And they're like, no, they won't spend the money on them, you know, for their own education, but they'll send, spend it on frivolous stuff before the education. What are your thoughts on that? Big mistake. It's just the more that you invest in yourself, that's the biggest investment you'll ever make, especially when you learn something new or a new skill or new knowledge or new perspective. That's something you carry with you the rest of your life. So the return on that investment is literally the lifespan that you see in front of you. So yeah, I'm all, I love to have material things and I got fancy cars and watches and things like that. But I also know that I, the biggest investments I've ever made were in myself. I love that. Now I got a question to ask, and this is kind of, um, it, it really touched my heart and then we'll talk the last couple of business questions, but, um, I'm a big mental health advocate. Um, I'm a, I'm a big um, suicide prevention um, advocate and I'm a, I'm a former suicide survivors attempt survivor. So knowing that you, you know, are involved with, I can help, which, you know, for me touches my heart because, you know, a lot of people don't know that on average um, 5,000 adolescents attempt suicide every day in the United States. And just to see that you're involved and you care about that subject and those people, that is what drew me to you. Not the money, not the speaking and all that. That's what drew me to you. So you can please talk a little bit about that and how we can support that mission. Yeah, it's a great organization. It's a nonprofit. It's called hashtag I can help. And if you Google them, you'll find that information. But we present the company. I've been on their board of advisors for about four years now. I know I'm friends with the co-founder. She's a former school teacher in California. 
So she's seen the the negative effects of this kind of stuff. But what it, the underlying thing is a cyber bullying, right? When I was a kid, bullies maybe lived on the corner of your street or things like that, and you, or they were on the school bus, and you basically you could avoid them. You could just sit in a different seat, or you could ride your bicycle the long way around the neighborhood, avoid passing in front of their house, like the things I had to do as a kid, right? So when you got home, you're pretty safe. Well, it's a lot worse for kids nowadays because of social media and you can't hide from your bullies anymore. They're 24 seven. I mean, kids are waking up nowadays and they're embarrassing photos or things making fun of them are posted on social media with thousands of their classmates laughing and tagging them. So you, can you imagine not even having a place to be safe from bullies and group bullying, which is a huge thing with these, these kids. So there's no surprise that childhood suicide attempts are at an all time high. Most people don't realize, I mean, it even got worse with the COVID restrictions because we've kind of eliminated socializing and the face masks and all these things that really just hurt socializing and social skills from kids who are already somewhat depressed and lonely because they're already being disconnected. So it's no surprise things are high. So with I can help, we help other companies and we help schools educate kids on how to use social media positively to identify signs of those bullying or the people being bullied and try to have outreach to help those kids feel like they're welcome and feel a little bit more safe and protected and teach them on how to deal with these kind of things because it is important and you know i, I know that there's some adults out there like oh you know well when i was a bully we, we got in fist fights and you just punch them back and you know and settled that way that's how i was the same way i get that and if you're going to acknowledge that cyberbullying sounds like less harmful because you're not getting punched in the face, you got to realize like suicide attempts are based on emotion and mod, you know, it's not logic, it's, it's emotion. And can you imagine like waking up in the morning and, and seeing some post that started late the night before and had 10,000 shares and everybody making funny like that, that's, that's terrible. I'd rather get punched in the face. Let's be real. So you know, it's actually worse than it's ever been. And that's what we're doing is trying to combat that. Well, I'm just so grateful for you for doing that. Now, you also help out with the food bank, your local food bank. So who is that one person in your life that had that heart of service that you got that from? Both of my parents are very, very empathetic and compassionate. I mean, my dad's a combat vet and He's always been in leadership type roles throughout his career. He you know, started as a journeyman and just kind of worked his way up, you know, superintendent, plant manager, things like that. And, you know, he never go to, went to school. I was the first one in my family on both sides to go to school, but he was always a leader and he was always the leader of his friend circles. And that, I get that from him. I watched, I had a great example of a leader in my house and my mom was the person that never really has any judgment or criticizing of any of it. She just loves everybody school cafeteria lady. She loved kids. She would always try to introduce me to kids that, you know, she thought were like nice, even you know, it didn't matter if they were an athlete or in the band or whatever. She just, just, she just loves people. So um, that's just who I am. I got, I got a good example from parents. I love that. So here are three, three quick fire questions that I, that I love to ask. Um, and it's, and they're business related. Um, if you had to start all over again, with little to no money, how would you do it in today's day and age? Well, I guess 
Little to no money. I, that, that was always my case <laughs> in every business I started. So I'm very familiar with that question from experience. And I think that nowadays there's really no excuse. I mean, if you have a cell phone, which most people even, even I've even seen homeless people sitting on the sidewalk on their iPhones, right? So <laughs> there's no excuse not to learn something new every day. And if you could learn a new skill or a knowledge base that you could apply and you can even make money off of your phone. I mean, people make millions of dollars from a device they carry around that has free access to all the information you can ever want in the world and ways to create content and get messages out there or have transactional relate, you know, uh, making a business. It's never been easier. You can do every single thing in the world business wise with your cell phone. So I think that I would just go learn a skill like copywriting or, or how to build something or, do some kind of a, a useful skill, even if it's paying you better than an hourly rate, you know, as an entry-level job. So there's literally thousands of opportunities out there, but you got to take the initiative to go learn that and, and apply it and then figure out how to sell that. I love it. So what is the most, the most important lesson you've learned while being in business? Something that I undervalued when I was a kid that I wish I would have done in my I wish I would have done this in my twenties instead of my forties is I wish I would have just hired a, a public speaking coach and did the communication things early on. And in my latest episode, I recapped Ed Milet. I interviewed him about a year ago and even he agreed that same thought. It's like, if you need to be successful for the rest of your life, go invest in joining a Toastmasters or a roadie club where you're getting some reps and actually getting to speak in front of crowds to become a more effective communicator. You get feedback. They tell you what you're doing well and what you can improve on. And that's what you need because yeah, communicating is opening your mouth, but learning how to speak influentially and communicate to get things across and have more certainty and confidence in the way you come across. These things are skills that you learn. They're not, they're not talents. If you would have heard me four years ago, I was not the same person. Even a year ago, I, if I would have done this interview, I was not the same person, but these are skills. It's just like, if you wanted to go learn Cantonese or Chinese or Italian, you'd go read a book and you would learn and you'd practice and you'd do reps until you started to be able to sound well and understand how to communicate. Well, public speaking, whether that's on a stage or on videos or a podcast, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. It's the same skill set, And these are things you have to learn. And I wish I would have done that in my twenties instead of my and by the way, Ed Milet, I, um, one of the great people, such a humble person, but such a, a powerhouse. So what top three piece of advice would you give to someone starting out in business today? I think that the first thing that most people, not just business people, everybody, you have to get over worrying about what other people think or say about you. I think that is always going to be the number one thing that holds people back, that keeps people living a life of regret, not trying the things that they really wanted to do because they're so worried about the potential criticism or naysayers or critics and haters. And the thing is that I want you to understand is that you're going to have those. Everyone who's doing something notable or worth noticing is going to have critics, haters, naysayers. I mean, think about this. Everyone in history of mankind, all the greatest people you can imagine, anything that's popping up in your mind, all of them had critics, naysayers, haters, sometimes even murderers because they disagreed with the things they thought.
father said, right? So what makes you as a listener think that you are going to be the only one in, in the history of mankind that everybody's going to love? It's just impossible. It's not going to happen. So understand that no matter what you do, how good you are, what your greatest intent are, there are always going to be people who disagree with you and don't like you. And that's fine. It's okay. It's actually part of the game. I would say 5% of the people that come across your audience are not going to be able to support you. And that's okay. In my group, I teach you to go, Hey, go earn your haters. Because if you get them screenshot, their stuff, bring it back to the group and we'll celebrate the hate with you because that's part of the game. And if you don't have any haters or naysayers or critics, don't pat yourself on the back right now. It just means you're obscure. It means nobody's watching what you're doing. It means that you're just unknown. So if that's what you want to be is unknown, like, okay, you're winning at that. But if you want to make impact, change the world or do something, you're going to have that. So just to adopt it, understand it's part of the game. I think when most people think about like deathbed, like they're old and they're elderly and looking back, you're going to be surrounded by your friends and your family at that time. You're going to be surrounded by these haters and naysayers that don't like you that held you back your whole life. So if you're going to allow these people to run your life right now, and they're not even going to be at your funeral, why are you doing that? Like it doesn't make any sense. So that's the first thing, get over it. Right. Second thing. That's, that's gotta be the number one. Cause a lot of people, you know, they worry about what everybody else thinks and they never do anything in life. That's, that's the number one thing that keeps everybody from doing something. I mean, it kept me from writing a book and, getting on stages and all that. It was the same stuff. And, you know, when, you know, let's say you do make it to that, that ripe old age and you're, you're surrounded by your friends and family and you're, and you're in your deathbed and you're thinking about what you regretted in life. You're never re going to regret things that you did and you failed. You're going to regret things you didn't try. And then you're going to go, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I start that business? Why didn't I learn that skill? Why didn't I learn to play guitar or whatever it is that you dream about? Like, it's always going to come back to, well, I was afraid to fail because I was afraid what other people are going to say about my failure. I mean, that's the truth. So if you know that that's why it's like, you can avoid all that by just doing it. Right. Definitely. And so how do we find you? How, um, how do we, you know, find your podcast? How do we get your book, your groups? And what do you have coming up? You have an event coming up. So talk to us about that. Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. My event is November 17 through 19. It's going to be, this event's going to be in Tucson, Arizona. We rented out a historic resort. It's like a dude ranch. We're going to have a full day of business speakers, some of the big names out there that have been guests on my show. And the next day, we're actually going to get on a charter bus and go to Phoenix, and we're going to have a full day of high-performance racing school. So, you know, we're going to have Dodge Hellcat 717 horsepower cars that we're going to teach people skid pad, road course, autocross, performance driving, especially for the people who have never done this kind of stuff before. It's a good bucket list item. And you will come away from that as a better driver, even on your normal commutes, when you understand car dynamics and handling and how to actually drive a car instead of play video games to say you do. So that's what we like to do is make these little destination getaways for entrepreneurs. It's a three days of networking and just building some strong relationships with people who are there and they're all incredible people and part of the community. And, you know, we've got the 365 driven society that's thousands of members now, and that's just who we, we build these things for. So yeah, that's coming up in November and uh, looking forward to that one uh, website and everything else, the social media, the, the podcast is 365 driven. 
just visit my website, 365driven.com, and you'll find all of that information there. My friend, I'm so grateful that you took the time today. Um, thank you for everything you're doing. Like I said, especially for helping the kids. And uh, that means more to me than anything. And I just want to say thank you for your friendship. And I'm truly grateful and humbled that we actually got to hang out and talk today. Hey, Richard, you're, you're a good dude. And thank you for having me on the show. And always enjoyed the conversation, man. Well, have an amazing week and God bless you and the family. Hey, guys, if you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new T-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee. And, and it, will, it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you're interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out. Leave us a note. Tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built. So if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Hey, guys, it's me, the Comeback Coach. Guys, I just want to tell you about a person in my life that is truly, truly amazing. And she's actually changing the world one house, one home at a time. Her name is Tammy Moses of The Hoarding Solution. She's the founder and chief encouragement officer of Homes Are For a Living, The Hoarding Solution, which is a veteran-owned and operated business. Tammy provides virtual consultations and workshops on the issues of hoarding. She believes in inspiring others to take their adversity and use it for the greater good. She is the voice of AKOPTH, adult kids of parents that hoard. She is also a voice and advocate for our, of, for YLITH, Youths Living in the Horde. You can connect with Tammy at homesareforliving at gmail.com and on Facebook at Instagram at The Hoarding Solution. So guys, if you know anybody that's struggling with any kind of hoarding issue, please reach out to Tammy. She has a heart of service and she truly cares about people. All right, guys, remember vertical momentum. The only way to go is but up. Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.